Tonight's talk is uh, on the other hindrances, which are attachment, aversion, and restlessness. And like Steve mentioned yesterday, I too marvel at your constancy in coming here and hour after hour being with the present moment as much as you can. Uh, this kind of unlayering and facing the truth of the moment takes a kind of courage that's not called for in our daily lives. So this is a rare and precious time. And it's also inspiring for both of us to watch you in your own practice. We've mentioned several times to each other how quiet you all are. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that and uh, let you know how inspired we are by that also. I came across a writing by Henry David Thoreau, who wrote Walden. And I also saw it posted on one of the boards out there. And then I remembered, when I'm a yogi, that I read everything on all the boards. <laughs> so, so by now, you must have read it already. <laughs> and maybe you read the bulletin board at least five times already. <laughs> but in any case, I'll, I'll read it again to you. What I have to read is a little more than what's on the board. And in case you didn't know, Henry David Thoreau was a writer and a man that was revered by many other great people in this world, like Mahatma Gandhi, uh, John F. Kennedy, and Frank Lloyd Wright. And he was um, a marvel for a lot of people. He went to the forest, he went to the woods, and spent over two years there in solitude. And he wrote about it uh, in his book, Walden. And this is a passage from it that, I, that has inspired me very much through my practice. This is called The Essential Facts. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear. Nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put to rout all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. And if it proved to be mean, why then to get the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world. Or if it were sublime, to know it by experience and be able to give a true account of it in my next excursion. So this is what we're doing here, experiencing this life more directly in this Spartan-like atmosphere where we're only given the essentials but even so, 
the essentials are filled with beauty, the birds and the woods, the sounds, the smells from the woods. So we're seeing reality for ourselves, knowing true nature for ourselves. There's a play that Lily Tomlin did, and I don't remember the stage, the name of the stage play, but she made an important Dharma statement in that stage play. She said, regarding reality, I find that reality is a major cause of stress. <laughs> So I try to avoid it as much as I can. <laughs> this is such a heavy talk about aversion. And <laughs> I try to put as much lightness as I can. <laughs> aversion and attachment. <laughs> so all of us take such great interest in understanding life, you know, philosophically, scientifically, through nature. <coughs> However, we, we want to do it in as many ways as we can. We read novels, books, we go see wonderful stage plays. Um, we read all these new scientific bestsellers. This is an important source of our spiritual understanding, and I acknowledge that. It has been very important for me. But the best example of our spiritual understanding comes right within ourselves, in this very mind and body that exists right before us. We are living holograms to that truth. And just by examining this very hologram of our own mind and body, we can find that truth for ourselves. This is what scientists are saying now. And in fact, the Buddha said this 2,500 years ago. He said, in this fathom-long body, we can discover all that is to be discovered about the universe. This fathom-long body is a hologram of the whole of the universe. So this is what we're doing here. And as we take away these layers of distraction that come in our daily lives, a lot of stuff comes up. Steve covered some of it yesterday. This stuff isn't so comfortable to be with, these visitors and filters in the mind. Many truths are revealed to us as we sit here and examine this holographic universe that we live in. Desires, aversions, restlessness, doubt, these all intensify. It's, they seem to intensify, but actually what's happening is we notice them more because the layers of distraction are away. Our kids aren't pulling at us. Our uh, spouses or partners or, or lovers aren't demanding that we talk one more time about the relationship. <laughs> so we notice, we get a chance to notice all this more. <laughs> And a lot of times we think we aren't doing so well because we, we say, oh, my practice is horrible. All I can see is all this aversion that I have. Um, somebody told me today that she thought a tree fell down because of all of her aversion. <laughs> I mean, it gets to be really serious. But actually, our practice is going well. We just need to know how to navigate the waters a little better. 
We just need to know about the elements that we're in the midst of. No, we don't want to face it. It's very difficult. We want, we want truth. We want God. We want emptiness. We want the light. We want all of this to come to us on a silver platter. But we find out, we sit down, we find out that it doesn't. All it takes is a little quietness, a little stillness, and we find out it's not going to come that way. Ask any sage, did it come that way for her or him? Ask any saint. You know, ask the Buddha, ask Jesus, ask Mohammed. It never came that way for any one of these great beings. I read recently um, in this Nature Conservancy magazine that I'm a member of that the devastation from the floods of the Mississippi actually served to restore the natural habitat of the land. And the quote was like this, the ancient pathways of the river were filled again. And so it reminded me of how when we come to practice, it seems like a total devastation. You know, our minds and hearts and bodies are flooded with all of this stuff that debris and stuff that we think that's awful. But actually, these ancient pathways of our own wisdom are coming to life again. So what seems to be like a catastrophe is really a blessing, if we can begin to see it that way. The thrust of these teachings is, and the practice of these teachings, is towards freedom. And we have to start where we are. We have to really be honest. It, this practice really calls for honesty. Any practice calls for honesty. When we sit and we're really honest with ourselves, we have to begin with where we're at. Are we really free? Well, sometimes there's some contentment when we sit, when it's quiet. But most of the time, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of visitors, filters that come to the mind. And we have to face that. We have to recognize that we are not free from that. We are prisoners from that. We have to face of that. We have to face this fact. A friend of uh, Steve and I and a great teacher, Jack Cornfield, said this about what we have to face on the path. A genuine spiritual path does not avoid difficulties or mistakes, but leads us to the art of making mistakes wakefully, bringing to them the transformative power of our hearts. So we sit and we think, these are mistakes, all of these this aversion, this doubt, this is a mistake, it shouldn't be like this. But actually, this is the way it is. And we're learning here to, to develop a different relationship to them, not to be caught in their web, not to be spun out by them. They may come and go, but we don't have to be caught up by them. So this transformative power is the power of our awareness. This is how we're developing a different relationship to them. We begin to see more clearly that all that appears disappears, that everything is impermanent, and all 
of this is happening because of our conditioning, because of the laws of cause and effect, we begin to see this for ourselves moment to moment. And that this awareness is a deconditioning and transformative power. So what happens when we sit here and a moment arises where there's great aversion? So our mind is filled with this aversion. And in the next moment, when we bring awareness to it, what fills that space? It's so quick that we can't see it. But what actually happens is awareness fills that next space. And so that space is also impermanently free from that aversion. It's difficult to see, but as we practice this over and over and over and over again, we begin to see and recognize the space of awareness that we develop that can be part of our consciousness, that can be part of our stream of consciousness. So we can begin to live more and more from that reference point, from the reference point of awareness, rather than from the reference point of aversion or doubt. This may be a lofty idea right now for some of us, but just stay with it and keep it there. Uh, Hold that thought. The nature of the mind is pure. That's its very nature. It has this luminous, pure nature. But what happens is certain things come into the mind that cloud it, that color it. And these are the hindrances, the filters of the mind. For an example, you might just picture yourself like Henry David Thoreau sitting on a porch that's out on a bluff and looking at a wide scath of the, of the horizon. And that horizon, as you wake up in the morning, is very clear. There are no clouds in the sky. The sky is just blue and vast and continuous and infinite. This is the nature of the mind. But very soon, because of the conditions of the earth, clouds start forming. And maybe there are these feathery clouds in the sky. So maybe those can be little thought forms in the sky of our mind. And then after a while, maybe the the thought forms build and the clouds build and and they're thicker. And they begin to get like rain clouds. And they gather water. They gather, gather raindrops. And pretty soon, a thunderstorm starts. And there's lightning and thunder. And there's a, lot, there's a lot of activity in the sky. So this is another part of the terrain of our mind. These things just occur because of conditions. These things, in the same way, happen our, in our own minds and bodies. There's nothing to control. We only need to learn how to work with them more skillfully how to navigate that terrain in a way that leads to happiness, in a way that leads to benefit for ourselves in the world, in a way that's useful. So we can let the rain clouds come, we can let the thunder come, we can let the lightning come, we can let the the lightness be there, we can let the beauty of it be there. It doesn't all have to be difficult, but we don't hang on to it. It's just coming and going, like clouds in the sky. 
So as we learn to navigate the waters and we learn to more skillfully use the tools that we have with these hindrances, we see that when we do this skillfully, their power to entrap us weakens. We don't have to be overcome by the power of their force. And there are two ways that generally we can work with them. The first way and that has always been prescribed by our teachers is through this directing of bare attention or bare awareness, um, mindfulness, to whatever arises in the field of attention. This kind of clear, non-judgmental, non-dual awareness. This kind of prescription uproots what's there. It uproots what's in the mind. That may be difficult to understand right now, but as you practice more and more, it will become very clear to you how that works. Mindfulness is like a light. It brings light to the mind. It illuminates the parts of our mind that are dark so we can see what's there more clearly. It has a nature to illuminate what is in the field of consciousness more clearly. It also has a nature of being like a mirror. A mirror doesn't hold on to anything. It doesn't reach out and grasp anything. It doesn't push out at anything to push it away. It just mirrors what's there. It's a, it's a very rare part. It's a, it's a part of our mind which isn't very cultivated this mindfulness. And so this is what we're doing, cultivating this now. The second way we can work with these hindrances is to cultivate its opposite. And I'll speak about both of these as I cover the three hindrances. This cultivating the opposite only weakens the hindrance. It doesn't uproot it. It just lessens its force so we're able to work with it more easily. It's natural to have all these hindrances. If we didn't have them, it wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't become the rich and beautiful human beings that we could be. It sharpens our mindfulness. It makes us more patient. It builds equanimity. Not really, it builds a kind of character as a human being, kind of richness in our character. So I'll talk first about the first two, which are attachment and aversion. These are the most deeply rooted hindrances of all the five, and they're the ones that cause the most suffering. They, they can infiltrate all of the other hindrances. Sensual desire, attachment, greed, grasping, the wanting mind, these are all different words for uh, this kind of, uh, this attachment. This, this first and most toxic hindrance. It's the most difficult to deal with, it's the most recurrent, and it's the most undermining of all of them. So it's important, you know, it's important to pay attention to this because we have to know the terrain of our minds. You know, we must be alert to all of this. We must be vigilant to all of this. Vigilant like a deer in a forest. You know, that kind of vigilance. We must understand these parts of our minds. This is what makes us a human being. It's traditionally described as a pond with colored dyes. So we see everything through this color, through 
So if the pond of our minds is colored with kind of an attachment to maybe food, everything during the day we'll feel hungry for. That's what that means. Um, we see everything through this kind of filter, through this kind of color. It's usually, we are drawn to it usually because it's pleasant. And when it's pleasant, what happens is we like it. And when we like it, after that what happens is we want it. And when we want it and we get it, we don't want to let go of it. So we grasp it. The world goes around like this. This is what the world, what makes the world go around. And so it's possible to live in this world as it goes, but not be entrenched in those forces. Usually we don't know when we're trapped in it, in this attachment. So we must be very vigilant. The signs in our practice of being trapped in it is if when we're sitting here we start saying, if only I could go for a walk, then my practice would be better. If only they'd have more dessert, <laughs> then I'd have more energy. If only I could take a nap, my practice would be more balanced out. If only we didn't have to do metta, I wouldn't have so much aversion. <laughs> if only I could do metta, I wouldn't have so much aversion. Either way, it's a trap. We're tinged by it. Another thing that happens that's funny in, in courses is we, we, can get, we can start getting attracted to anything, even things we don't know. We can see someone in the course and say, oh, that person has nice hair. That person's really nice. He or she really has a good sitting. She's really still when she sits. Maybe I could get to know him later. And you sit there and start your whole, just that one thought, that just that one tinge of liking or noticing something nice or what was pleasant will keep your mind going and going. And pretty soon, you, you're, you're out of the retreat in your mind you're on a date with this person. <laughs> the person proposes to you. You plan your whole wedding. You get married. <laughs> and then after that, you know, maybe later in the retreat, you see that, oh, that person puts too much food on his plate. <laughs> so in the next sitting, you're getting divorced. <laughs> so, these are the kinds of things that happen in practice, you know, that we're, we can get so affected by this liking. It can, our whole minds can be, our whole life, you know, in one sitting can go before us. It, you, you can just see how carried away we can get even in one sitting or one day. What about a life? What about our whole lives? It can really affect us very deeply. So we're not always aware of this. And when we are, it can be a great teacher to us. It can really acquaint us with our minds and we can begin to laugh at what's happening instead of getting caught in it. You know, when we can begin to laugh at what's happening, then we know we're getting 
healed. We're getting further and further away, even if it's only for a moment. So it's as if with, with this craving, our life isn't complete. You know, our present moment is always incomplete. And what really affected me at, in the practice is that as I practiced more and more, I always could feel that this moment was more complete. And you know, that one thing meant so much more to me than anything else than getting all the blisses or um, having any kind of unconditional peace. Just in this having, in one moment, feeling a sense of completeness, that for this moment it's okay. This moment can be complete. So this is what keeps us running, that maybe the next moment will complete us. If we get this, maybe then we'll be complete. It, it keeps us in this forward motion all the time. So the Buddha didn't say that we shouldn't enjoy life or we shouldn't want, but he simply asked us if we could possibly have a different relationship to it, a relationship of awareness, rather than of being caught in the grasping of it. There's a poem that expresses this by William Blake, and his poem is called Eternity. And it goes, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So if we can experience all of these happiness and joys and whatever comes in this way, without holding on, our lives could be more complete. There's a possibility for it. We can enjoy our lives much more fully. From a Buddhistic uh, psychology experience, each one of us has a predominant mindset. And they are the greedy type, the aversive type, and the deluded type. And since we're talking about um, greed or, or grasping. I'd like to tell you a few stories about that. You know, when we're doing the practice and when you, you get to do the practice for a while, we start kidding about these types we are. And it, it becomes a funny thing rather than a heavy thing. So I'm the greedy type. I'm the aversive type. <laughs> <laughs> so someone like, if you were to listen to a conversation between Steve and I, it might go something like, I would say, I really like that. And Steve would give all the reasons why he doesn't like it. <laughs> he, would, he would say why he doesn't like something, and I would say why I like something. But I really learn a lot from Steve because he can see things clearly. I'm so blinded by what I want. I just go for what I want. And Steve will say, but, you know, these are the things about it that aren't so good. So it makes, you know, having an aversive type and a greedy type really <laughs> interesting to be better with. <laughs> I have a, um, a good friend, Michelle, probably some of you know her, Michelle McDonald-Smith, and we'll go shopping together. And, um, I have permission for Michelle to say this. And we'll, our favorite store in the whole world is in Hawaii, and it's called Liberty House. 
And we love it because we renamed it Liberation House. <laughs> we get liberated from all of our, uh, all of our dukkha because, <laughs> because all we have to do is go and look at all the pretty styles and colors, and it's you know it's the total distraction. So we get temporarily liberated from our dukkha. And um, Steve yesterday said a, a great thing which made me think that he was finally transforming. <laughs> <laughs> Getting a little more balanced. <laughs> oh, he made this offhanded remark about, you know, sometimes I just feel like going, going and spending a lot of money. <laughs> so I said, Steve, when you get that thought, call me right away, <laughs> and I'll take you to iMagnet. <laughs> I don't think he'll want to take me. <laughs> but anyway, back to Michelle. <laughs> when we go shopping, it's really interesting because Michelle has a very discerning mind, and it's really great, you know, for for when you get into a retreat and you're working with a greedy type and an aversive type. Because I'll, I'll say, I'll, I'll, I'll make you feel really good, and Steve will say, now look at this, now look at that, you know. And this is what Michelle does when we go shopping. We'll, we'll, Michelle will say, you know, that's not good because that isn't going to last long, that isn't going to wear well, and she'll see all those things about it, and I'll just say, Michelle, look at this, this is really beautiful. And, I'll, and the key word is, it's a classic. You should get it. <laughs> You'll never be younger and more beautiful. <laughs> Whoops, out comes the checkbook. <laughs> this is real life, you know. <laughs> and so we also have a teacher named Manindra. And I guess I learned my shopping skills from him. <laughs> he really loves shopping. He's a greedy type mostly, too. A little more balanced than I am, but uh, one time, to show you how strong it is, I mean, this is, and this is a, a being that's, that's really transformed to, you know, to some degree, and to show you how strong it, it acts in the mind is, once he was staying with me, and he had just had an operation, and it was really difficult for him, and he was with me so that I could take care of him. And they had, there was a big cut in his belly. And so they had stitches on there, and it was still kind of hurting him. He went to have this kind of butterfly um, stitches on them that aren't, and he had to take the, the, the string out. And so we went to the doctor, and he had them taken out. And I had it, and it was still painful. And we were in the car on the way home. And it was very difficult for him to get up because, you know, the muscles in his stomach would hurt him. And so I had the um, seat down for him, and he was laying down, and the doctor had given me a prescription for pain, which he never used, and for more antibiotics, which he did use. And so I, I was driving him home. And I went to Long's Drugstore, which he loved to go to. He would wander around and look and, and get a lot of gifts for people. 
One of the things about a greedy type is, is the great generosity that's there too. So I, I uh, rolled down the windows and I said, Moniji, I'm going to get your prescription. I'll be right back. And he was laying down like this. And then um, he, he opened his eyes and he said, where are we? And I said, Long's. And I hesitated. <laughs> and, he, and he got up and he said, shopping? <laughs> we have this, you know, this joke between us <laughs> in the Dharma. Shopping? <laughs> True story. <laughs> <laughs> it deeply infiltrates your mind. <laughs> deeply. <laughs> so as you become acquainted with it, it doesn't have to bother you. You know, you, you can make it a light and joyful thing. Oh, there it is again, you know. Do I go shopping or not? <laughs> Do I eat or not? Is this wise or not? You know, you can make your decision within that space of awareness when you're able to apply it. So usually, as I mentioned earlier, we become attached because um, we're familiar with things. We, we become attached to things we're familiar with. And it's because it becomes very comfortable there. So watch out for that. You know, when, for example, someone today very honestly and humbly said that, you know, when somebody tells me what to do, I. I become like, oh, I don't want to do it. There's aversion. That aversion first stems from attachment because we become attached to the places that are comfortable for us. So it's, it's interesting to acknowledge that. You know, when something, when our minds are being open to something new, to question ourselves, are we attached to what was there before? You know, and to, to ask ourselves, can we open even more? You know, is there harm in this? Will this lead to more wisdom? Will this lead to more happiness? Don't become blinded by what's familiar. There's this beautiful story um, from a book called The Teaching Letters of Zen Master Sun Sunin. And, at the, and the title of the book is Only Don't Know. And it's about this attachment uh, to ideas and opinions, maybe to what's familiar. And it's about this uh, man who had decided to resign as a Dharma teacher. And he wanted very much to maintain his personal relationship with his teacher, and so was writing to him about what was happening. And so the, um, uh, his teacher, the Venerable Sun Sinin, wrote, it, wrote back to him, and he said, part of this letter was this, after the beginning part, which says, thank you for your beautiful letter. Your mind is very sad. My mind is also very sad, he said in reply. Your mind has many hindrances. Also, I am a hindrance to you. And then he goes on to say, I like you very much, but you don't listen to me. I'm skipping a lot. These are kind of the poignant parts to me. I always say to you, 
Uh, going back, returning your dharma, teacher robe and bowls to me is just more holding on to your ideas. You once gave a beautiful dharma speech about a bear in a cage. It is a wonderful story. This is the story. Once there was a great black bear who lived in the mountains. He was happy and free. When he wasn't sleeping, he spent much of his time searching for food. Sometimes he found some and sometimes he didn't. This was life. One day some men came and captured him and they took him to a large circus where they locked him in a small cage. Soon an animal trainer taught him to perform circus tricks. Each time the bear performed a trick correctly, he would be fed. The rest of the time, he just walked back and forth in his cage. It was a small cage, so he got to know it very well. He always had enough food, and soon he forgot his life in the mountains, his freedom. One night, after several years had passed, some vandals crept into the circus and broke open all the animal cages. The bear was suddenly free, and he left the circus and found his way back to the mountains where he had once had his home. But the mountains were now unfamiliar, and it was not easy for him to find food. So he began turning somersaults forwards and backwards, forwards and backwards. It's all he knew how to do. Some other bears watched him for a while and then asked what he was doing. Oh, he replied, I'm doing tricks so I can get food. You rockhead, they laughed. <laughs> I like Sunset's way of looking at things. <laughs> You're in the mountains. What is going to bring you food for turning somersaults? You must find it yourself. This bear had become so attached to his cage that he had forgotten all about freedom. Everyone does this. Everyone has a cage that they have become attached to. A doctor's cage, a lawyer's cage, a professor's cage, a job cage, a friendship cage, a partner's cage, a family cage, a teacher's cage, a vipassana cage. Anything can be a cage. People live in these cages and so they don't really understand freedom. This means they don't understand the rest of the world. They only understand their cage. I want you to break your cage and make you completely free and a great man. So I am very sad that you are making your cage stronger. Someday your cage will not be strong and then I can help you. If you put down your holding mind, then your cage will disappear. I hope you can only go straight. Only keep a mind which is clear like space. Then soon finish the great work of life and death and get complete freedom. Become a great man and save all beings from suffering. Yours in the Dharma. And so he signs his name. So we can ask ourselves, what are these subtle cages that keep our mind rolling, you know? 
What are we attached to, even as subtly as our own views and opinions? So the next difficult task is facing aversion. This is usually, aversion usually is unpleasant. So when aversion is unpleasant, what happens? We dislike it, and then we form all kinds of responses on top of that dislike. Maybe we hate it, or there's jealousy, or there's rage. There's all kinds of levels of aversion. Aversion is easier to see because we notice it more quickly. It's more painful. It is said that it's easier to enlighten an aversive type. (laughs) I knew I shouldn't have said that. because we can notice it more easily. So when we notice it more easily, it's, we can more quickly apply mindfulness. We can more quickly be aware when we notice it. The trouble with aversive types is they feel strong <laughs> egos. <laughs> no, that Buddha didn't say that. <laughs> um, so this aversion is this not wanting in the mind, um, a turning away from. When something arises that we don't like, we, normally what happens is we'll either close down or we'll turn away or we'll push away it, it, to varying degrees. We'll strike back. You know, there's degrees of aversion. So in any way you're doing this, you know, check to see how if your mind is closing down, you can see um, uh, you can begin to see it even when it forms this kind of strong hatred. You know, is the mind beginning to close down? Not because of dullness or because of sleepiness, but because, you know, it's like somebody does or says something or something arises as a memory and, chook, you know, we can feel ourselves closing down. It's a natural response of, of protection because maybe we were conditioned to protect ourselves because we might get hurt if something approaches us that seems unsafe. So we have to pay really close attention. So it's kind of a struggling mind. There might be frustration there. There might be irritation or some kind of subtle not liking. In extreme, there's this hating and rage. And this all happens because of conditions. It wasn't born in us. You know, the seed of it is there as human beings. But it, it happened because of the conditions of, of our lives. There's no one to blame. This is just the way it is. Traditionally, it's described as a boiling hot spring. You know, and if, you, if there's a boiling hot spring, if you go to it and you look, try to look at your face in it, you can't see because it's ruffled. Sometimes I wake up from having a bad dream and I don't notice that the whole day is tinged with aversion because of the bad dream, because I didn't like the dream. 
or the dream was scary or a lot of fear was brought up. I mean, this is how subtly it can, you know, I can wake up and, and all of a sudden the tea doesn't taste good, I dread going to the office, I dread facing anything, I'm not facing anything with clarity, and all of a sudden in the middle of the day I realize, what happened? You know, it was, it could have been just that bad dream I had the night before. So maybe what happens in the practice is that you're noticing that things are not going right, that you don't like the food, or you begin um, to maybe notice somebody's sandals and think, gee, those sandals are all beaten up. Why don't they get a new pair? Or why can't we have more of this or more of that and have this kind of resentment in the mind? So it, it manifests itself in different ways. One of them, too, is fear. Fear is like, I won't get what I want. This is how it, it can be connected to um, a mind that's wanting, how aversion can be connected to, some, to initially something that you want, and you figure, oh, you can't get it. So maybe there's fear. Maybe you want more peace. Maybe you want more opening. Maybe you want more cookies. Maybe you want more romance, whatever it is. And you feel like, oh, I'm not going to get it. And fear overcomes you. It's like, I won't get what I want. Another way is maybe there's anger in the mind because there's obstacles to what you want. Or perhaps there's jealousy. Someone else has what I want. Or depression, that you'll never get what you want. Or maybe it's grief that you lost you didn't have the chance to have it. The temporary antidote to um, aversion is metta. And if it works for you, for some people it doesn't work. It'll just bring up more aversion. And if you're feeling that way, then one of the ways to, to counteract that is to just go outside when you're feeling a lot of aversion, and look at something that makes you feel happy, that you're not aversive to. If it's the sound of the bird, if it's the rustle of the trees, if it's sitting next to the brook, you know, try to find a way where you can balance out your mind state so that you can navigate those waters more easily. First and foremost is bringing uh, mindfulness to it. But a lot of times when the aversion is so strong, it's impossible to bring mindfulness. It, it seems like it doesn't work. So you have to work a lot with balancing the mind in different ways. When uh, I was practicing at Barrie, in Barrie, Massachusetts, the last time it was really cold. And uh, I'm normally the greedy type, but I turned very, very aversive, and I didn't like anything. And Mainly, I didn't like the cold weather, and I just wanted to go home. That's how aversion and, and uh, the grasping mind are, turned, are tied together. You know, you don't like something, and you turn, you, you turn your mind, you turn towards something that you want. So that's how they get so, you know, sometimes we can't tell them apart. We can't tell if we want something, 
or we're pushing something away. So this weather, it was so cold, and I wasn't used to the weather, being from Hawaii. And uh, what helped was just every few days, somebody would leave a chocolate at my doorstep. <laughs> it was just that little thing that helped. It, you know, it, it balanced out my mind state a bit. And I was able to face the rest of the afternoon or the day better just by coming up and seeing this chocolate there. You know, it, it was a way for me to navigate. So to me, chocolates are the eighth factor of enlightenment. (laughs) Okay, last but not least is restlessness. And restlessness is a difficult one to, uh, to work with. Sometimes we're sitting here and we feel like there's nothing that's going to stop us from just bolting out of our seats and heading towards that door, going through the screen, and getting out of this room. No more. (laughs) We can't take it anymore. We get that kind of restlessness. Or sometimes it's just an anxiety or a worry in the mind, like a little ruffling in the mind, a disquiet. You know, we begin to regret something, remorse something. There's a little uh, inner turmoil. And we'll begin to notice it first, if we don't notice it in our mind first, that we just can't sit still. You know, we, we need to change our position, and, and we think it's the pain, but it's really just restlessness. So what do we do about it? You know, usually in the practice, if, if we can't just bring awareness to it and feel like it can get balanced out, we have different tricks that we can use with it. They say that restlessness is like a bull. It needs a large pasture. So if you're sitting here and you can't go out to a large pasture, you know, or go take a walk, what you can do is just bring your awareness as big as the room, as big as this you know, this acreage of land as big as the sky and let that restlessness just take place within that bigness. And you can watch the whole tumultuous moving and, um, and all this stuff coming and going just as kind of a symphony, you know, of disquieting sounds. Just letting it be that way. So that's one way to work with it. If it's really difficult, don't come into the room and sit if you feel like, you know, it's it's really overcoming you. Take a walk. And you can start with more fast walking, and then as you feel your mind settles, you can slow down. Or you might need just to take a walk in the forest and then do some little, uh, some walking meditation that brings, unifies your mind more. But find for yourself your own balance. Usually, when this happens and we're not aware of it, we start, when we're sitting, we come to realize that we're writing our book again, or we're redecorating our home, or, you know, I'm in Liberty House shopping, or someone else is baking cookies. Um, You know, it's sort of trying to release that energy in our minds. 
we're, we're kind of trying to release it that way. When you catch yourself doing that, you can, you can note that you're thinking and note wandering mind. And then just tune in with your body, check in with your body and see what's happening there. You know, and do whatever you can to balance the walking, the big mind kind of meditation, whatever it is. There's a lot of energy. Sometimes a lot of this energy is covering up what may be, you know, some emotions more deeply. And it might be a precursor to some emotions needing to come out. So the mind is unsteady and it keeps, you can't keep attention on it. It's very difficult. It goes from one thing to another and it's not really present for any object. You know, instead of flagellating yourself for it, you can say, oh, it's just restless mind. That's all. You can't stay with it. It's just restless mind. And try to do something that will help you to navigate those waters more. So, sometimes what happens is many of these come together at one time, and it's called a multiple hindrance attack. We spoke about it this morning a bit. And the only thing you can do then is just try to see what is the most predominant thing that's attacking. Go to that area, go to that place, you know, or that hindrance or whatever it is, and see what you can do to balance that. To nav- If mindfulness isn't doing it for you because it's too strong, then see what you can do to balance that. And at this point in the retreat, you know, you, you have enough of the tools to see what is your own balance. Steve and I have tried, it, tried to guide you and give you all the tools we know. Um, and, and they'll be more subtle ones, but and we'll refine it more to your own practice as you come to us. But these are just kind of generic prescriptions that you can use. So what, what we're trying to do here is develop a kind of mind and heart that's resilient and that can navigate these waters. You know, a lot of times maybe these won't be present, but when they are, you'll know how to work with them. You can have a different relationship to them. They don't have to be all the time heavy, bogging you down. You know, you can have a way to look at them with a little lightness and uh, with skillful means. They're going to come and go and come and go and come and go throughout your practice. What happens as we practice more and more is that we don't get identified with them as much. You know, they can be there, but it's okay. Or it's relatively okay. And so expect them to be there. You know, they're not really going to go away too soon unless you get fully enlightened in the near future. (laughs) There's a... There's a little passage in uh, Achan Cha's book that I'd like to end with. And the book is A Still Forest Pond. And the passage is entitled, The Leaves Will Always Fall. Every day or two, the open grounds and walkways of the monastery must be swept clear of the leaves that fall in every Asian season. 
For the large open areas, the monks will team up and with long-handled bamboo brooms extended, sweep like a dust storm, clearing all the leaves in their path. Sweeping is so satisfying. All the while, the forest continues to give its teachings. The leaves fall again. The monks sweep again. And yet, even while the sweeping continues and the near end of the long path is being cleared, the monks can look back to the far end they have already swept and see a new scattering of leaves already starting to cover their work. Our lives are like the breath, like the growing and falling leaves, says Achan Shah. When we can really understand about falling leaves, we can sweep the paths every day and have great happiness in our lives on this changing earth. So I wish for you great happiness on this changing earth, sweeping the path. (laughs) I'm sweeping with you too.